0: Hey, listeners, this is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. I'm here to tell you, because I have a lot of listeners wanting to come to one of my trainings, I'm here to tell you about one. I'm going to be speaking at St. Francis United Methodist Church in St. Francis, Minnesota, on Sunday, November 5th, from 6 to 8. It's open to the public. Just come. I would love to see you. For more details, visit the upcoming engagements page at EllieKrug.com. I would love to see you. Bye. Ellie Krug with the Ellie 2.0 radio. Hello, 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 hello. I'm thrilled to be back. Bringing you net next, yeah, bring, read the notes, Ellie. Bringing you yet another episode of Idealism and humans working to change the world for the better. I, you know, ah, jeez. The big interview on today's show is with Marshall Tannock who is going to talk about efforts to undermine diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in the legal profession as well as just about everywhere else. You're going to enjoy the interview. He's very – Marshall is very engaging. He's very smart. In my C Block, as always, I'll talk about my work as an idealist, okay? But uh, let us begin here in the A Block with our featured idealist of the week, writer and activist, James Baldwin. And frankly, I've got to tell you, I am a bit appalled, probably more than a bit, that it's taken me to show number 301 to highlight James Baldwin, since he is someone I've long admired and who have who had profound impact on shaping the conversation around skin color in the 1950s and 60s. As a black man, James Baldwin was incredibly outspoken about how America treated people of color, particularly black folks. Who was James Baldwin? Well, he was born in New York City in 1924 and attended high school where he was the literary editor for the school's magazine. He He had long had a dream of becoming a writer, and ultimately he met Richard Wright, another black writer, who had penned a very, very successful novel, Native Son. Now, parenthetically here, I'm going to throw something in. It was a report on Native Son uh, that I did at Co College in 1975 in the fall, my fall semester within a month and a half of starting Co, It was a report on Native Son that earned me my very first college A. Um, and in fact, that A was pivotal to my entire college career. It taught me that if I used my imagination and worked hard, I could succeed. So Richard Wright was a mentor to James Baldwin, okay? And when James Baldwin was 24 years old, he received a writing fellowship that took him to Paris, France. This would be in 1948. That trip altered James Baldwin's life because he found the French to be far more accepting of him, that his skin color wasn't a barrier, and that he felt the freedom to really become the writer that he aspired to be in France, So, living in France, he helped finish a book that five years later, 1953, James Baldwin published. The name of the book was Go Tell It to the Mountain, um, which I trust some of my listeners right now are well familiar with. The book was autobiographical about Baldwin growing up in a – I mean it was – a novel, but it didn't have him named. It had characters, but, you know, basically about his life, about growing up in a strict Pentecostal church household because James Baldwin's stepfather was a Pentecostal minister. He was very strict. He was physically abusive, okay? And the book is also, was also, you know, about with the character, main character, trying to suppress his homosexuality through religion because James Baldwin was gay, growing up in a time where being gay, you know, illegal in America and certainly to be a gay black man, oh my gosh, James Baldwin also penned a collection of essays titled Notes of a Native Son in 1955 and in 1956, uh, not not much later after he published his first book uh, and, and, you know, he's only at this point. 32 years old, okay, James Baldwin published his second novel, Giovanni's Room, where the central romantic relationship was about was about um, gay men, okay, and where the main characters were white. In 1957, James Baldwin, when he was 33 years old, um, was asked by a literary review um, to go to the South, because James Baldwin was living in New York City asked him to go to the South and report on Jim Crow and how black people were being treated. James Baldwin took that trip, and this is where his involvement with the civil rights movement began. So much so that eventually James Baldwin took part, and he spoke at the 1963 March on Washington, and he was in the Selma to Montgomery March, which many of us are aware, remember, you know, the – beating at the Edmund Pettit Bridge in 1965. And if nothing else, apart from his incredible intelligence and writing ability, James Baldwin was passionate. In a second, I'm going to air a clip of James Baldwin appearing on The Dick Cavett Show. Now, you know, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s. Dick Cavett, I'm well familiar with. He was a talk show host. And he and if I'm correct about this, he had a talk afternoon talk show, because I believe so, because I believe I was watching his afternoon talk shows. So unlike, you know, uh, Johnny Carson of that era, some young people don't know who he was. But, you know, un- unlike talk shows at night tonight, these were afternoon talk shows. So think Oprah. OK, think uh, Ellen DeGeneres and Dick Cabot was an interesting character because he didn't shy away from issues um, that were of the day, all right? So the clip that Brett, uh, my lovely producer, Brett Johnson, is going to air in a second is from May of 1969. And what Dick Cavett did is he brought in – first he had James Baldwin on to talk to him about his work and stuff. And then Baldwin went to the couch. And then uh, Dick Cavett introduces this man named Paul Weiss who was a professor at Yale, Paul Weiss White. And he want, he brought Paul Weiss on. You're going to hear this, okay? Brought Paul Weiss on to have him comment on what James Baldwin had said before. You know, it was now Paul Weiss's turn to come from behind the curtain and, and sit in the chair because now Baldwin was on the couch, okay? And what you're going to hear is what Paul Weiss first says, all right. in response to what he had heard Baldwin say, which we didn't, we don't have on the clip. Um, but then you're going to hear James Baldwin respond. You're going to know who James Baldwin is as, soon as you hear his voice. Okay. Listen to what he has to say, because what he has to say in 1969 is the same very same thing that we could say here in 2023. So listen to this. Okay. And watch how James Baldwin pushes back. Okay, Brett, if you could, please.
1: I would like to add someone to our
0: group here. Uh, Professor Paul Weiss, the Sterling Professor of Philosophy at Yale.
1: <laughs> Were you able to listen to the show backstage? a uh, um, good deal of it, but then I was behind the last minute. Yes. So I heard only some of it. Did you hear anything that you disagreed with? I disagreed with a great deal of it, and, uh, of course, there's a good deal I agree with. But I think uh, he's overlooking one very important matter, I think. Each one of us, I think, is terribly alone. He lives his own individual life. He has all kinds of obstacles in the way of religion or color or size or shape or lack of ability, and the problem is to become a man. But what I was discussing was not that problem, really. I was discussing the difficulties, the obstacles,
2: the very, the very real danger of death thrown up by the society when a Negro, when a black
1: man attempts to become a man. All this emphasis upon black man and white does emphasize something which is here, but it emphasizes or perhaps exaggerates it and therefore makes us uh, put people together in groups which they ought not to be in. I have more in common with a a black scholar than I have with a white man who is against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who is against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948,
2: I let this country you one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. I ended up in Paris, on the streets of Paris, with $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself. You had to be able then to turn off all the intent of which you live, because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to sit at a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white, and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That's it's a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black right. people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks I give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen.
1: That was in May of
0: 1969 the words that james baldwin said hold true in november and october october of 20 we haven't hit november yet october of 2023 we're hearing right now real time real not real time we're hearing white leaders say why do you have to talk about skin color all the time you hear we hear white leaders saying oh it's a colorblind society i don't see color and then we hear people of color particularly black men Talk about being afraid, about the fear that they have because they never know, they never know when it will go south for them. We would like to think that things have changed and they, of course, have in many, many respects. But the core thing, the core thing about white people white-color people dictating whether you can talk about skin color or not, dictating that you should just be happy because the world we see is good for everyone. We're still in that world right now. We still have those things going on. And it's appalling. It is. Okay. All right, well, enough about that. James Baldwin, go check him out. I actually have never read, you know, Go Tell It to a Mountain, but it's on my list and I'm gonna do that because I got a big break coming up from all my work. All right, we're gonna go take a br- we're gonna go take a break, and then uh, when we come back, we're gonna have Marshall Tannock on. You're gonna enjoy greatly the interview of Marshall Tannock. If you like what you hear, visit my website, Ellie Krug t- Ellie Go visit go email me at L E J Krug or Follow me on X at L E Krug for as long as I'm still on there. Okay, we'll be back in a sec. back le 2.0 radio so check out uh, james baldwin please do um he is a personal hero of mine and uh yeah yeah i don't think you can get enough of james baldwin frankly nor can you get enough of uh our next guest uh for the big interview i am thrilled i think absolutely thrilled would be the right phrase uh, to introduce marshall Tannock. Uh Marshall is a personal hero of mine because among other things he is not only a lawyer but he is a writer as well but let me give you the uh, 211 on Marshall he's a graduate of Stanford Law School he was also awarded order of the coif which uh if you're a lawyer you know that's like the highest honor that you can get in law school he's been named a Minnesota super lawyer he's also been named author of the year by the Minnesota Bar publication um, and he is a partner at Meyer, Noose, and Tannock here in the in uh, the Twin Cities. Marshall Tannock, welcome to Ellie Two Radio. I'm thrilled to have you here.
3: Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be back again. And uh, you're very uh, too kind and too nice in your introduction, Ellie.
0: Oh well, you know, and and I love it, Marshall, because I mean, you practice law and you continue to practice law, but you're also, you know this writer that and, and i'm noticing you're getting your words out you're getting your publications you know your columns out to more and more publications and i'm thrilled about that and you write on a variety of topics but a lot about first amendment and and that's really what i have you here for to talk about so audience you may know in the past i've talked about what's this anti-wokeism that's going on across the country And there is this movement now um, by a lawyer, a well-known conservative lawyer by the name of um, Edward Blum and his organization, the Alliance for Equal Rights, which is now attacking uh, law firms and their efforts to change the the legal uh, playing field. Marshall, give us your take on what's going on with Edward Blum. His organization and and kind of, if you could lay the kind of the landscape about why this, you know, the legal profession is so far behind as it relates to uh, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts.
3: Well, there's a lot to unpackage there, Ellie. But I'll just uh, start with a few observations. Um, this is not a unexpected development. Um, it's been an evolution or a devolution uh, over the past. Maybe five years, perhaps ten years, in which efforts have been made to silence and suppress various voices by large, powerful, well-resourced organizations like Mr. Bloom. And um, interestingly, as you point out, the attack now has gone towards law firms um, as a basis for kind of cutting off the cutting off the uh, situation right at, the, at its source. And I think it's a very ominous situation when law firms are under these kind of attacks. Not that law firms deserve special treatment, but in a sense they do, because law firms are not only businesses, which my firm is, but they also play an important and essential role in representing the interests of other people, other claimants, often people who are underrepresented or marginalized. And if the law firms are under attack, it limits and impairs their ability. to to represent their own clients, not only themselves, but their own clients as well. So it's a very ominous um, uh, overture and uh, one that uh, is probably the outgrowth of uh, other efforts, some successful, that he and his organizations have made in other institutions.
0: Well, and can I just throw in here parenthetically, you know, the legal profession is a little unique, isn't it? I mean, we have the history, the legacy of... More than 200 years were the only people who could be lawyers going from the mid, early to mid-1600s to the mid to late 1800s. The only people that could legally be lawyers were white Christian men. That was it. That was all that was allowed. And so because the profession has this legacy, the profession, you know, with my work and my audience knows this about trying to make the profession far more representative of our society. And, you know, there there are these fellowship programs where, you know, law firms are bringing in minority law students to work specifically. I mean, it's open to minority law students to get them to come and work in the law firms and clerk they've got efforts to recruit more minority lawyers because partners in law firms are still predominantly white in skin color and all of that. And Blum, you know, Marshall, can you explain, can we go back to the affirmative action decision that happened this summer? Can you give the audience a little bit of a read about how that is playing into what Edward Blum is doing?
3: Sure. As just about everybody knows, the Supreme Court, not surprisingly, struck down affirmative action as far as it pertains to academic admissions at colleges. A very narrow reading of that case would suggest that the ruling is only limited to racial preferences for academic admissions. But that's not the way it really is going to play out or has played out and how Mr. Bloom is playing it out. Uh, The decision, and and I I, I foresaw this before the decision came down, uh, not that I'm that uh, not that I'm that insightful, but other people noted it too. That that decision uh, is going to have wide ranging impact on workplaces, uh, employment, set aside programs, pref- uh, my, uh, uh, women business programs, uh, local, uh, financial programs that offer some incentives to first time buyers. Anything that is not strictly based upon uh, neutral, objective considerations. Are under attack, and Mr. Bloom has been successful in that regard. I'll just give you one example of one, out, one of many outgrowths of the affirmative action decision by the Supreme Court. The name of the case was Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard. Uh, one outgrowth that's uh, going through the court system already, uh, and others are piling up behind it. There is a program that a, 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 a black women entrepreneurs program uh, by private sector black women providing scholarships for young black women to uh, have a, opportunities to engage in their own entrepreneurship. It's sort of a very uh, uh, modest uh, kind of shark tank type program where they're providing seed money for black women to be entrepreneurs or to start entrepreneurial businesses in, in, in Atlanta. Bloom's organization attacked it on, on grounds that it violates the principle of the uh, fair admissions case, Insofar as it's not uh, colorblind or color neutral, and so far he's been successful. A court in Georgia enjoined that program. Oh
0: my God! And,
3: and, yeah, and it's not that un- it's not that surprising if you take the affirmative action decision by the Supreme Court and some of the rhetoric of that case, uh, and um, including the Chief Justice John Roberts' remark that the way to stop discriminating is to stop discriminating, and also his <laughs> comment that. Decision making by government entities must be based, may not be based on race. Period. Now that's for government entities. However, under the Civil Rights Act, the same principle applies to private entities. So that ruling stands for the proposition, at least in Bloom's view, and in some views of others, that any any decisions, any actions any preferences that are based on race or color or gender or religion or affectional preference or anything of that sexual orientation, anything it would be suspect at least, and maybe a verboten under the Harvard admissions case. And that's what Bloom and his organization are doing. And they have plenty of money to do it. Incidentally talking about the money end of it, and you know this as well as uh, many people, Ellie, uh, uh, money and resources are extremely important in fighting these cases. Um, In the Harvard case, Harvard was sued, and so was North Carol- University of North Carolina. So it was a public suit and a private suit. Um, the two institutions spent more than $100 million oh my God. in legal fees. I'll repeat that in case you didn't hear it. $100 million in defending the case. Well, many organizations, most I suspect, do not have anything close to being remotely near that kind of number. So um, when these cases come along, um, well-financed as they are, the defendants, the parties against whom the cases are brought, whether they're law firms or small businesses or other institutions, are going to have to look at how much they are able and willing to spend to defend the cases. And they probably, many will decide this isn't, it's, we can't afford to fight these cases and therefore enter into some kind of settlements or consent decrees that will give a bloom most of what he wants. Secondly, Because Bloom's organization won the Harvard case, they they are what's called the prevailing party. And in that kind of litigation, the prevailing party is entitled to have the other party pay its attorney's fees. So by the time that sorts out and it hasn't completed yet, Bloom and his organization probably will receive somewhere close to $100 million from Harvard and the state of North Carolina. And that's a pretty good war chest to take on these cases. So to say he is well-resourced is a vast understatement.
0: I'm blown away by that, Marshall. I really am. I just, you know, and, and I mean, particularly for, you know, for a nonprofit, which you just described about the uh, uh, the the organization trying to empower uh, black women in business, which is a nonprofit. I mean, they're trying out there to do good and then to attack them on a to be able to to scare the heck out of them and to end that program. I mean, Marshall, how are we going to change the system? Because it is a system set still with white structural racism in place. It's white people calling the shots and directing everything.
3: Well, you're right, and uh, the system, of course, is made up of people. The system doesn't do anything. It's the people in the system who make the decisions, and therefore, changing the personnel and getting more diversity and engaging in DEI programs is essential to try to make change. However, the problem is that Plume and his organization are cutting that off, trying to cut that off at the pass, and saying if you can't, if we can stop DEI, if we can stop diversity, then we're going to get decisions that perpetuate the stereotypical and historical supremacy of white males. So it's a it's a smart plan in that respect. He's going after the source. And if you want to attack DEI, the way to attack DEI is to stop DEI programs so people uh, of different backgrounds and races and ethnicity and religions and uh, orientations are prevented from being in the decision-making process. So that, ans- that doesn't answer your question of how we stop it. But I guess the point is we need to keep encouraging that kind of diversity and equity and inclusiveness in all of our institutions to the extent we can. Now, unfortunately, the Supreme Court decision creates a huge impediment to that and uh, changing personnel and getting different people in decision-making processes. And the judges who make these decisions need to be more aware of the consequences of their decision. And we need more DEI on the bench, too, although that is getting better, at least certainly in Minnesota, uh, Governor Walls has done a remarkably um, good job in uh, diversifying our bench, um, but that's you know that's not the whole answer. But getting judges who are more sensitive, not only to those concerns but to the consequences of their decision and what their decisions mean in the real world is extremely important.
0: So, Marshall, let's uh, let's uh, let me see if I can get you to put your um, your um, forecaster hat on. You know, the uh, Bostock decision, the decision where the Supreme Court essentially said that you can't discriminate against people on in ba- employment on the basis of of LGBTQ uh, status, that decision is only, what, three years old? Um, and then, you know, we've got, of course, the marriage equality decision that uh, came down in 2015 from the uh, Supreme Court. What? Where do you think those two things are headed? I mean— you know, Bostock is only three years old, but do you think that they that the Supreme Court will be willing? Because, again, that's that's about preserving, allowing people of, uh, you know, who are LGBTQ to keep their jobs, which, of course, is a pretty important thing. Do you think the court it would be so bold within the next year or two to just say, you know what? We made a mistake about that. We're going to – just like they did, you know, with Dobbs, you know. Forty years after uh, uh, Roe was decided, what what do you think might happen?
3: It could. It's a it's a good it's a good point and a good question. The um, Bostock decision was again a very narrow one. In the Bostock case, what the court did there and the decision was written by Neil Gorsuch, one of the more conservative members of the court. Well, that's uh, that's uh, saying a lot because of the six conservatives, uh, so called conservatives, I refer to them sometimes as the radical. Right extremists on the court, but uh, Mm. at least the media likes to divide things into conservative and liberal. But uh, in that case, the issue before the court was whether the 1964 Civil Rights Act, barring discrimination based on sex, extends to LBGTQ. And the judge said, well, at that time, LBGTQ was not on the radar screen. They may not have thought about it, but we'll just interpret the words as they appear in the statute. And you cannot Uh, make a consideration of uh, LGBTQ status without taking sex into account. Since the statute refers to sex, we're going to interpret that broadly and give that kind of protection to that community. But that was a very narrow decision under the federal civil rights statute. And you're absolutely right, and hopefully you're not prescient, but you're certainly spotting a problem here, a danger, that the court could well say, as they did in the Dobbs case and as they did in the several other cases, as they may well do in future cases, is that decision was either wrong or they could say, well, that decision was a very narrow interpretation of a particular word in the federal civil rights statute, but our fair admissions case decision, which bars consideration of, of race, uh, is a constitutional decision, and that should supersede our statutory interpretation. And therefore, they could say that they could get around Bostock not by saying Bostock was wrong, but just saying Bostock is a very narrow decision based on a statute. And we take a broader we take a broader view that constitutionally it's impermissible to give preferential or favored treatment to people because of. Fill in the blank: race, sex, ethnicity, orientation, and the like. So, I think that the Bostock decision, among many others, is uh, in play for future determination. I don't think it's the main thing on this, this court's agenda right now. But I think, but to get to Bostock, I think they have to first deal with the uh, uh, with the uh, Obergefell decision in the same-sex marriage case. And there have been intimations, as you know, oh, yeah. from Justice Thomas and others, that that ought to be taken a t- taken a, a look at again. And if that falls, and I don't know that it will, but if that falls, Bostock is in great danger.
0: You mean Justice Free R V. Thomas, right? Right.
3: <laughs> and Thomas made his you know his his infamous concurrence in the Dobbs case, and what he said is yeah. that we ought to review. And when a court says we ought to review a decision, that means change a decision as to the um, contraception case, the yeah. Bowers case, and the same-sex marriage case. And interestingly, oftentimes when there's these concurrences and dissents, the judges go back and forth, but none of the judges on the uh, right-wing faction of the court objected to Thomas's remarks. They so implicitly agreed with him. Yeah. They didn't yeah. say, well, we're not going that far. We're not, we don't agree with him on that. He made that statement, and there was sort of an implicit recognition by his five colleagues uh, that that's not a bad idea.
0: Marshall, you've got me even more scared now. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, I, had, well, I said, hadn't like, considered let, the let's constitutional something, thing. Let's
3: something a little bit more hopeful. <laughs> I hope uh, maybe we can maybe we can say that there you know there certainly are battles to be fought. And there are courts and judges who are sensitive to some of these concerns. And it's not altogether clear, although it's it's frightfully um, a, a frightful concern that this court is on a wrecking mission to take away all most of these significant precedents. And maybe there's going to be some point where they're going to stop and say enough's enough. We've gone as far as we can. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be the case right now. And there may be a slippery slope involved here.
0: So, Marshall, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about you. Okay, because you you have done what, you know, not to throw myself into this, but what I I did. I mean, I, you know, I started out as a civil trial lawyer and and then I changed my life. But I wanted to write and I was able to get, you know, a stint, a long stint with uh, Lavender magazine. And I write now occasionally for Minnesota Women's Press and stuff has shown up in other publications. And you you have really if and and tell me if i'm wrong but it seems you've really been able to step up your submissions and and publications and what you've been doing tell me why what what has brought you to do that what uh why you know why have you expanded from just simply you know um, being a tremendously effective trial
3: lawyer well i uh, appreciate the question since you asked and i'm not uh trying to boast but since you opened the door on this um i write weekly or bi or monthly pieces for approximately a half dozen different publications um some of them are law publications some of them are business law publications and some of them are general interest publications they cover a wide variety of topics for instance this this month one of my columns in a, in a publication was about the political the first amendment issues relating to lawn signs political lawn signs and a week later, I wrote a piece about the insurrection uh, case involving President, former President Trump and whether he'll be knocked off the ballot, which has First Amendment implications, too. So I try to keep it in a constitutional vein, but uh, I often write for the general public as well. Um, but th- there's several reasons, I think, why I do it. One is I'm, my background, like yours, to some extent, is in writing. I used to be a journalist, still am a journalist, enjoy writing, and it's my, it's my hobby, really. I, I find it enjoyable and and, um, and and intriguing to do. Number two is I, um, I like a lot of different subjects and I have a somewhat wide ranging mind. So when I think of a topic or issue, I like to explore it and see how it uh, comes out if I write something on it. Thirdly, it's a way of getting the word out to people and creating some sensitivity and concern about it. What I think are important issues uh it it's oftentimes spurs debate within the community about some of these topics, uh, and uh, that's good, that's healthy. And uh, quite frankly, it's a way for me to get my name in front of people, and it's, a, uh, to some extent, a law firm marketing device. I think lawyers who are in the public uh, eye uh, tend to do it because, in part, it attracts uh, business and clients. Sure. And that's not that motivating you, but it's probably a consequence as well as, as more than a, a motivating factor.
0: So, you know, I, we're getting towards the end of the interview here in Marshall. I always ask my guests if they consider themselves to be an idealist, somebody who's working to make the world better. And, and if so, how did, you know, how did they get to be idealistic? So there are those two questions to you. Marshall, do you think you're an idealist and how, what, what happened in your background to cause that to occur?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think it's fair to characterize myself as an idealist. There's, I'm not an extreme idealist because I have a, it's, it's a tempered with a great deal of practicality and pragmatism, which, as you know well, you have to have when you're a lawyer, especially a trial lawyer, because you're, you know, the issues are going to come at you that you don't always foresee. And sometimes you have to take issues that, that maybe are on the opposite side of what you believe in, but you advocate for them nonetheless. But I would consider myself an idealist idealist in that sense uh and um trying to uh, create a better working environment and a living environment for people in a way that's fair and inequitable uh i don't know if there's any single factor that motivated me i will say that uh, i give some credit to my parents and their, their my upbringing they, they pointed out to me and taught me to look at the the world from the standpoint of some of the have-nots and people who are less advantaged and uh, that that kind of stuck with me and And as I progressed through my career, I found that um, uh, so many people have been marginalized and underrepresented through the system that they deserve a voice, Uh, not only individuals, but issues, too. And I tried to be the voice for those people, in part based on my upbringing, part based on my educational background. And uh, some of that may just be ingrained in me based on um, my views of uh, how society ought to work.
0: Well, Marshall, thank you for what you're doing. Okay, I am just thrilled that you are writing. I'm thrilled that you're also a lawyer and still practicing. But I'm just, I'm grateful for you to be on my show. And I look forward, I look forward to more of what you're going to write about. And um, just keep it up, will you please?
3: Well, thank you very much. And you, uh, Elliot, you know, are such an important voice in the community, what you're doing. And uh, I have nothing but praise for you. And I enjoy listening to your program whenever I can.
0: Thanks so very much, Marshall. All right. Well, take care. All right. So long, my friend. Okay. All right. Audience, that was Marshall Tannick. Uh, He's a partner with Myers, Noose and Tannick here in the Twin Cities. Check out his uh, go check out the firm and check out his bio Um, and and check out his writings because you're going to see his name more and more. His byline on more and more publications and more and more pieces. All right. When we come back from our break, uh, we'll cover my C block where I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. Thanks.
1: And we're
0: back. LE 2.0 Radio. Marshall Tannock. What can I say? You know, writing for six different publications. I am like jealous. But um, I'm impressed that he's got the time to do all that and be a lawyer on top of it. Boy, the guy must never sleep. Okay. All right. Uh, C Block. Talk about my work. A number of different things. One is uh, yesterday. No, excuse me. Thursday. um, I was in Litchfield believe it or not, um, speaking to uh, county employees, uh, county social service employees um, about um, gray area thinking. I did gray area thinking in the morning and then the afternoon talked about how to be welcoming to transgender clients because they serve a lot. I, You know, I asked them, you know, I had a room uh, when I gave the trans talk. Uh, you know, about thirty people, and I asked, "How many of you are you know are seeing trans and non-binary people out here in Litchfield?" And you know what? <laughs> like two-thirds of the room raised their hands, and they told me I heard that like thirty percent of their caseload are people who identify as trans and non-binary. Now they serve a lot of kids, a lot of youth. Okay. I, I kind of blow me blew me away, but the reason I'm telling you about going to Litchfield is that I got out there because there was a very, very brave um, director who decided that he would bring me to Meeker County, bring me out to Litchfield to speak. It is not trust me, it's not a given that you would bring a transgender woman who doesn't pass because of the voice out to rural Minnesota to train your entire team. It's not a given <laughs> that you would do that. And I think that there was a – no, the, I not think. I know there was a degree of bravery involved in him doing that. And I told him that and I told him and I had the audience applaud him for being so brave. And I'm actually incredibly grateful that he did that because um, it was a nice group of people. They seemed to be very accepting and – and um And for me as the idealist, remember, you've heard me say this is where I've got to do the work. I don't need to do the work in the Twin Cities. There's plenty of people doing the work in the Twin Cities. There are not a lot of people doing the work out in greater Minnesota, out in the greater Midwest. That is where the work needs to be done because it's the greater Midwest that are setting the legislators, okay, into the statehouse in St. Paul to make our laws or to fight the laws, okay. And so that's where I need to do the work. Second item. Uh, this, you know, yesterday morning, I was um, at a middle school uh, speaking to about, uh, I'd say, about thirty um, kids, uh, many of whom identify as LGBTQ, and um, getting questions about what it was, you know, like to be Ellie Krug and and uh, a little bit of my story, you know, and and when I go and talk to kids like that, I tell them that they're worthy, that they that they have value, that they. You know, they're all on journeys. They get to decide where that journey is going to take them. They get to decide, you know, and reminding them about the grit and resiliency. I've just got to tell you the questions that I got from these kids and then the comments. Oh, my goodness. I just – it just – it just so warmed my heart. It did. I mean, you know, I mean – it, it is the most I mean you know I do a lot of work and I get to do a lot of rewarding things and get all kinds of you know positive feedback but going and talking to younger queer kids is really the the best it's the best of the best because it's such an honor and it may be really impactful if I do it right and hopefully I do do it right and so I just yeah, really grateful. Last thing, okay? Because I get people who are asking, "Hey, where can I come to speak? Come hear you speak?" So, if you're interested in, in in attending a gray area thinking training, there is a public training where I will be. It's open to the public. It will be at St. Francis United Methodist Church in St. Francis, Minnesota. So you're going to have to travel a little bit up in Anoka County. It's going to be on Sunday, November fifth. From 6 to 8, it'll be gray area thinking again at the St. Francis United Methodist Church, St. Francis, Minnesota, on Sunday, November 5th, 6 to 8 p.m. If you don't have to register or anything like that. You just come. You just come to the event. I think they might have sweets or something like that. I don't know. But you'll they'll have me. Okay. I hope I see you. Okay. All right. And there's one thing I didn't do last week and I'm going to do – I didn't do it very well. You may recall that last week's show was show number 300. And at the end of that show, you know, I talked about a few things. But I did not do something that I should have done nearly enough. And that is to thank Brett Johnson, my producer. You know I say Brett's name almost every week. He is the architect of this show. He is the one that has seen this thing through. I am grateful to the the, the station owner, Chad Larson, for sure. But Brett Johnson is the one. And Brett, I'm looking at you right now, and I just want to tell you I'm sorry, I didn't give you the uh, acclaim that you needed last week, but you're getting it now. Oh, no Thank problem. You.
3: We've always loved having you on the airwaves. Too very important to get your show on each and every week.
0: Thank you, Brett. Okay, listeners. Till next time, go out and do good. Bye.